The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you decide to rule for disqualification, it's not clear how you establish the factual record to support that. And if you decide to rule against disqualification, what do you do with all this evidence that is not trivial that the county DA and her top prosecutor in the biggest case in the history of Fulton County, and maybe the biggest case in the history of anywhere else for that matter, are both lying on the stand. And so I know that it is fashionable to belittle this situation, and there's been a kind of you-go-girl quality to the uh, media's coverage of her testimony and of the proceedings sort of making this seem like a giant sideshow. And in some sense, it is a giant sideshow, but in another sense, it has raised a real set of integrity questions about the Fulton County prosecution. And while none of them bear on the integrity of the case, I do think they are pretty substantial questions at this point. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast from March 2nd, 2024. It's another episode of Trump's Trials and Tribulations, recorded on February 29th in front of a live audience on YouTube and Riverside. I sat down with Lawfare senior editors Quinta Jurassic and Roger Parloff, Lawfare Courts correspondent and legal fellow Anna Bauer, and Lawfare editor-in-chief Benjamin Wittes to talk about the Supreme Court's decision to hear Trump's presidential immunity claim and how much the D.C. trial may be delayed. We also discussed this week's hearing in Fulton County, previewed what to expect at the Friday Mar-a-Lago hearing in Florida, and talked about what is happening with the New York criminal trial. And of course, we took audience questions from Lawfare Material supporters on Riverside. It's the Lawfare Podcast for March 2nd. Trump's trials and tribulations. The Supreme Court will hear Trump's immunity claim. Let us start with the big news that came in last night. That is that the Supreme Court has granted cert in Trump's case or the case in which Trump is seeking presidential immunity or absolute immunity, depending on who you ask, federal prosecution for events arising out of January 6th. Quinta, let me hand it over to you to start us on this. What did we learn last night? What is its significance? And where does that leave the broader D.C. prosecution that this arises from? Thanks, Scott. I have to say, looking over the the court's order, I'm actually struck by how confusing it is, given that it's only two paragraphs and it, it took the justices two weeks to to get here. Um, so, of course, we've been waiting uh, for two weeks since Trump first um, asked the the court to weigh in on this question, or we first got the briefing, and I think the assumption 
pretty widely, reasonably widely. I know I'd heard both uh, Ben and, and Roger uh, sort of fashion a guess that perhaps we were waiting for a bit because the court was planning to basically kick the whole case back to the trial court and that, you know, perhaps there was a, a justice writing a dissent and that was what was taking so long because if the court simply had decided to uh, say that they were going to hear the case, um, and I'm, I should say I'm, I'm skipping over some of the procedural nitty gritty here, that that wouldn't take very long at all to to write. And I, I agreed with this as well. And we were all shown to be jokers who have no idea what's going on yesterday at around 5pm when the the court um, issued an order saying that it had not only granted Trump's application for a stay, um, but had decided to treat that as a petition for a writ of certiorari and that it would hear the case. When I say that there's a, a lot that's not clear, what I mean is is this. So it's not clear why it took the court two weeks to get here. It's not totally clear what exactly the court will be hearing. Um, so the the question presented, the court stated, will be limited to the following question, and I'll quote, whether and if so, to what extent does a former president enjoy presidential immunity from criminal prosecution for conduct alleged to involve official acts during his tenure in office? Um, and there's been a lot of discussion among law professors on social media about the extent to which that does or doesn't narrow the questions from those addressed by the D.C. Circuit below. Then I think that we can we can talk about why that is. But I think the bottom line that's important to be clear about up top is what this means for the trial. So the court um, said that the case will be heard uh, for oral argument in April 22nd. So that's near the, the end of arguments for this term. That probably means that we should be expecting a ruling from the court maybe in May. I think it's probably fair to say more likely in June, although what the hell do I know? (laughs) Um, June or probably end of June-ish. And that, of course, is important because uh, as nobody wants to acknowledge, there is a ticking clock running up until the election on November 5th. Um, So Judge Chutkin had said that she was going to give Trump a full seven months to prepare for trial. That, of course, has been on hold um, since this immunity issue was first raised. Um, I believe I saw Alan Foyer in the New York Times had calculated that at this point, Trump has, that means that Trump has an additional 82 days of time to prepare whenever the case goes back to the district court. 88, I think. 82, 88, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, it's somewhere in the 80s. So essentially, in terms of when the, the case starts again, you have to get the mandate back down from the Supreme Court to the trial court and then add 88 days, and then a trial can start. Plus, you have to factor in the fact that jury selection is going to be kind of a zoo. Um, So if you add up all of that together, which Roger has, has done, you end up with a start time for a trial that is cutting it pretty close to the election. Um, which I think is really what is most important here, because I think it's fair to say that most commentators, um, myself included, think that the court is probably not going to take Trump's immunity claim particularly seriously. So the issue here is less the what the court rules in the end, and more the fact that the case is no longer with the trial court while the Supreme Court is considering this immunity issue. 
So I want to get into substance here, but let's focus on timing first. Roger, I'll come to you on this because you did put together a somewhat hopeless uh, thread on this on Twitter or single tweet even, I think, uh, although I got a thread's worth of responses. Walk us through the timing here and, and lay it out against the election timing here, because there's kind of two different variables people are interested in. One is, will we have a verdict by election day that people will be able to take into account in their decision about who to vote for for president. The other factor that people are interested in, I know our colleague Molly Reynolds asked about this specifically internally a little earlier today, is where exactly what's going to be happening in that phase of the election when public attention really queues up, which tends to be basically September, October, um, particularly after the summer, we're going to have the nominating conventions in July. I, believe, I think they're both in July or at least midsummer. August tends to be relatively sleepy, but you know, late August up into September, October, that's kind of the height of the fervor and public attention on the presidential race. Um, so what's going to be happening at that phase at this timeline and how confident can we be in that given that there's a lot of moving parts? Well, in order to get this trial done before the election, to get a verdict before the election, I think you would probably need to get a ruling from the Supreme Court by roughly, you know, May 13th. That was my guess. That would be like three weeks. That's unbelievably uh, optimistic from I, maybe I should say fast, um, given that it took them, as as Quinta pointed out, um, 13 days to write 200 words. And if, on the other hand, they were to issue the ruling at the end of June, as Quinta said, then, you know, I don't think that you, you can't do it. Um, if it were May 13th and you add what I, I think it's around 88 days, you would get uh, August 9th, which is a Friday, maybe you would start jury selection August 12th. I think you, you know, in a case like this, you're going to need three weeks of uh, jury selection. So maybe you could start trial on uh, September 2nd. All this assumes, of course, that the Supreme Court doesn't say, send this back for more findings, you know, uh, uh, which is a possibility. But so maybe the the trial starts September 2nd. Jack Smith has estimated his case in chief would take four to six weeks. Um, if we assume uh, the Trump case and the rebuttal case take another two weeks. And of course, Trump's lawyers will be going kicking and screaming to, to create delays. Um, I think the, the most optimistic for a jury, the jury getting the case will be November 1st. Uh, the election is November 5th. So that is, I think, not doable. I think it's it's not doable. And I think they knew that. I honestly think they knew that. They have a lot of they have a lot of good clerks. Uh, they know what we know. They know more than we know. So uh, I am uh, pessimistic. So that does raise the question in this case, we have a situation where it looks like this pushes the timeline past the point of election date, but the Supreme Court's still moving on what for it is an expedited, if perhaps not as expedited a pace as it could be going on. Ben, what do you make of that? What is the sense about what logic could have led them to this particular outcome, particularly after such a long deliberation, which does seem to suggest internal negotiations, discussion about the way to go forward. They clearly were not united from the outset on how to handle this or else they could have reached this conclusion a lot sooner. Yeah. So I think there's really three possibilities. And let me 
uh, articulate them in ascending order of cynicism. So the, the most uncynical representation would be, hey, this is a group of people that simply doesn't feel the electoral urgency of this the way Jack Smith does, uh, and is in fact a little bit annoyed with Jack Smith over his pleas of urgency. So, you know, he says, everybody agrees that you're not allowed to say we need to get this done in time for the election. But what he's been doing is speaking in code and say, we need to get it done because the public has a a right to a speedy trial and the fair adjudication of justice. And the justices are listening to this and saying, hey, he's he wants this done in time for an electoral calculation, and that is inappropriate on the Justice Department side, and we're not playing ball with that. And so when they, uh, when he asks them for cert before judgment, they come back and say, nope, do it in the regular order. And when he then comes back and says, no, 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 really expedited schedule, please, on, uh, in the regular order, they're like, yeah, okay, we'll expedite a little bit, but we're basically going to treat this a lot like another case. And this is really frustrating for Jack Smith, but it's the Supreme Court taking seriously the idea that the electoral calendar doesn't matter and isn't a legitimate consideration. And so what we should do as a court is consider this in the usual expedited way, not in some way that was designed to make sure the 88 days let you get a trial started in time that it's done by November 5th, Election Day, Guy Fox Day, Ben Wittes' birthday. Second possibility, a little bit more cynical. They actually want to expedite it but don't want to be seen to be playing the games that Jack, that Jack Smith, uh, including, by the way, not just Donald Trump, but, you know, our colleague Jack Goldsmith is uh, accusing him of playing. Uh, and so what you do is you expedite it enough that he'll get what he needs, but not enough so that you look like you're playing ball with him. And then the third possibility, the really cynical possibility, is they are trying to give Donald Trump a win here without giving him a win. He is going to lose on the merits, but if they can buy him a little time, uh, then he may lose on the merits, but he gains something anyway. And so that would be the really cynical way to look at it. I tend to favor a combination of one and two as the explanation but I'm not avert. Like if somebody says to me, no, 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 it's really number three. I'm not going to fight with them about that. I mean, I think the court, the court had an opportunity here to handle this in a reasonable, regular order kind of way and keep its hands clean. And it, it dug itself a disposition that's going to come in the middle of an election cycle and maybe prevent adjudication of this case in a fashion that's consistent with being done in that election cycle. And so I think it kind of deserves all the criticism it gets, honestly. Now, I want to ask you about the timing and this chunk of the clock, because there's one big chunk of the clock. There's a lot of other moving parts. Everybody acknowledges the Supreme Court's going to need time. Jury's going to need time. But the biggest chunk of this is this 88 days that Judge Shekhan has set out. 
That is not a product of and statute. And she's not b- bound by that, by that's the, what, by That's the way. what I want to ask about is, what are the factors that go into that number? I mean, she said seven months ago, back at the start of this trial process, it, I, it, I don't believe it was written in an order even clearly as saying, like, you, I'm committing to provide this. I think it was a, a, a verbal remark, if I recall, a trial. But maybe I'm wrong well, about she, that. It's a little bit more than that. Okay, maybe that's right. So lay it out for us. Like, what are the pressures about forcing her to stick with this timeline and not stick with this timeline? So the big pressure is that she articulated, you'll have seven months. And then when the government came in and started filing briefs while the mandate was at the D.C. Circuit in order to keep on schedule – she specifically kind of rebuked them and said, you can't file any more briefs without leave of the court. And then she specifically said to Trump's counsel, I promise you seven months and you're going to get seven months and none of this time is going to count. And so she would have to, you know, she has not only said you're going to get seven months, but she's said that the period where the mandate is not with her is not going to count against that. So she would have to go back on a pretty clear commitment that she made in order to uh, go back on a pretty clear commitment that she made. And she would have to do it with a pretty, you know, pretty clearly with the electoral calendar in mind, which is the one thing that everyone from she to Judge Cannon to the Supreme Court to Jack Smith at least pretends they're not doing. Yeah, just just one one additional point on this, and I'll give a shout out to our executive editor Natalie Orpit, who's not not in this session, but um, if I recall correctly, made this that point about Chutkin sort of potentially changing this set up a, a few weeks ago when we were discussing this. I think it's also worth noting there's been some discussion around uh, whether Smith might have some incentive to. I'm not really sure what form it would take, but I guess move to to push back a trial until after the election. If it if the start date of a trial ends up coming too close to the beginning of the election, this of course is referring to the the much vaunted uh, DOJ sixty uh, day election interference policy, which caused us no end of trouble in 2016. I've seen a great deal of speculation that you know if if we came up too close to the election, that you know Smith might want to delay. I frankly don't really know what to make of that one way or the other, especially because, correct me if I'm wrong, everyone, but I don't really think it's up to Smith at that point. It's up to, it would be up to Judge Chutkin. Um, But just flagging that as kind of an additional potential complication to put on the table. Yeah, it would be a prudential factor for Judge Chutkin to consider. It is not a So the DOJ policy in question is a policy that the Justice Department does not take overt actions in criminal investigations involving public figures who are on ballots within 60 days of the election unless there's some extremely good reason to do so. That's like there, there's not a, it's not a hard ban. It's a presumption. Uh, and when a judge, and that may mean that Jack Smith should probably not ask for a trial date in that window. But if she were to set a trial date in that window, uh, that is a court order that binds the Justice Department. It's not a, 
uh, it's not covered by the policy. And does the policy arrange for apply to scheduling trial that's already been indicted? I thought it was so summarily it's, it's investigatory It's over indictment. investigative steps. Right. I never read that to include trial steps as, as after an indictment's brought. Well, but it remember that the, the most famous violation, so-called, of this policy was the re-indictment of Casper Weinberger, which was done within a few days of the 1992 election. Uh, and that was done because the judge in question gave the Justice Department a deadline of that day to do it. So there is a kind of iterative interaction with courts, but generally it covers indictments, it covers search warrants, it doesn't cover when a case goes to trial. So we have a lot more to talk about today, but I want to get into one more part of this, and that is this question about the scope. We saw the court drill down a little bit on the question presented the that you heard Quinta read off a second ago. Um, you know, it does seem it makes no reference whatsoever to the idea that a prosecution can only come after being impeachment by the Senate, which was one of former President Trump's key arguments. So certainly the strong suggestion and a reasonable one, I think, is that that's really not part of the argument the Supreme Court wants to hear argument on. It then uses the language official acts. Um, this ties the idea that where it, we're, what we're addressing here is a claim of presidential immunity in a case where it is a, a criminal prosecution is hinging on alleged official acts of the president uh, or when the former president was in the presidency. Quinta, what do you make of those? That that certainly seems like a hint towards a form an argument that is different from what the DC Circuit did. DC Circuit really only addressed this in a footnote, uh, where the official acts distinction is really something from the civil context we're familiar with. And the DC Circuit tried to avoid it by focusing on election violations and only really narrowly analyzing those. Is this a hint of which way the court's thinking about this, or uh, or perhaps where its concerns lie that would lead it to take up the DC Circuit's opinion? What do you make of it? Yeah, it's it's an excellent point. So I do think that um, I'll point to uh, both Jack Goldsmith on Twitter and Lee Kavarsky, who's a law professor at UTA, um, just had an op-ed out in the New York Times making this point. Um, it does seem like the court is signaling interest in the idea of focusing specifically on this question of immunity for official acts or for some subset of official acts rather than the sort of the broader approach that was taken by Judge Chutkin in the district court and by the D.C. Circuit, which basically said, you don't have absolute immunity, period, full stop, end of sentence. See footnote 14 if you're in the, the D.C. Circuit. Um, and as you say, that that footnote did kind of go into the uh, the details a little bit and sort of hinted at how they might break it down, but didn't go into it completely. Um, and so I do think that this is perhaps signaling that the court, well, certainly signaling that the court wants to think about this sort of narrower subset of the bigger question, and may, um, as as Jack points out in his tweets, indicate that you know there's perhaps some concern on the part of the justices that the sort of broad brush approach taken by the lower courts. Uh, doesn't leave enough room to kind of allow presidents to take actions um, for which, you know, some sort of malicious for a future prosecution might seek to hold them accountable. Um, so I, I 
do think that that is significant. Um, and as you said, I think earlier, it's also noteworthy that they they sliced out this question about uh, whether or not uh, the impeachment judgment clause precludes a prosecution in this case. So Trump uh, was arguing in the lower courts that he couldn't be prosecuted for January 6th because he had been acquitted in his impeachment trial in the Senate during the second impeachment. Um, I think everyone... <laughs> found that fairly ridiculous. Um, And it seems that the Supreme Court did as well, because they don't even want to hear about it. Well, before we move on from this matter, there is one collateral issue we should at least flag for people. And that is this is not the only Supreme Court case we will be hearing relating to or that could have a bearing on the January 6th trial. In fact, we are hearing another one, this Fisher v. United States, we saw little action in and is getting teed up for oral argument two months from now. Roger, what's happening in that case? And how might that weigh in here in a different direction? Yeah, this is Fisher versus United States, and this is a challenge to the way the Department of Justice has been using uh, the statute uh, corrupt obstruction of an official proceeding, mainly in the January 6th cases, and these are January 6th defendants bringing the action. But of course, two of the charges against Trump are also uh, this statute, 18 U.S.C., uh, the corrupt obstruction and conspiracy to uh, corruptly obstruct. And uh, the gist of it is that the statute has two provisions. Uh, The first provision narrowly discusses corruption, uh, obstruction through, you know, destroying documents, uh, forgery, uh, messing with evidence. And the second provision is much broader. It just says corruptly obstructing an official proceeding. One judge uh, in the di- district at the district level, uh, almost all, well, about somewhere between 12 and 15 judges at the trial level said that this applies only, uh, this, uh, that the government was using it correctly in the broad sense. Uh, um, but one judge said they weren't and that it really had to, it was limited to uh, attempts to uh, monkey with evidence, basically, to affect the uh, acts that affect the integrity or availability of evidence. Um, and so this theory is coming up. You know, some people have said, well, this won't really affect the Trump case, because even if they adopt that, uh, you know, in, in Trump's case, I mean, in, in the Trump case, the government is talking about the alternate electors scheme, which involves falsifying these these uh, electoral slates. So it would it would fit, but this isn't really necessarily true. And and the way that the the Fisher lawyers are framing it, and the way most lawyers have framed it. Is that given that they're saying that the statute only applies to acts that affect the integrity or availability of evidence, uh, it also means that the types of proceedings that count uh, are only evidentiary proceedings. So the proceeding here, the, the statute talks about congressional proceedings being covered. But what they're, what the argument, what Fisher petitioner is saying is that uh, they need to be proceedings involving investigations and evidence. Like, so you could have a congressional 
uh, investigation like the January 6th committee. And if somebody alters evidence or uh, relating to that, that would count. But what we have here with the joint session is, uh, you know, where, where the vice president opens the envelope and counts the votes. That's a min ministerial function that wouldn't apply. So uh, just to be clear, you know, this does squarely, um, the challenge does squarely implicate endanger, uh, you know, if accepted in its broadest form, two of the four counts in the indictment. Although it, it, it is fair to say that unlike a lot of the other cases where Fisher would have impact, uh, it's not clear that the two charges remaining, like if, if, if you dropped out the 3C, uh, charges here, um, you know, the, the other conspiracy charges would still be quite robust. They would. These carry the 20 year potential sentence. I think the max for the conspiracy to deprive people of their rights, the, their, the right to have their vote count, I think that's a 10 year maximum. And then uh, the conspiracy against the United States uh, to defraud the United States. I think that's a five year. So, and, and, uh, that probably translates into, you know, sentencing guidelines and so on. So, um, it would still be, uh, uh, a loss. Well, let us move our eyes further south to federal district court in another jurisdiction. That is, of course, the state of Florida. Uh, Roger, we are seeing some developments in the Mar-a-Lago prosecution. We've got a pair of hearings coming up, uh, or a number of hearings discussing a number of issues. Tell us what is on the schedule for the MAL case, the Mar-a-Lago case, and what you'll be looking forward to that in the weeks to come. Yeah, there's a big um, hearing tomorrow, and uh, our colleague uh, Anna Bauer will be there, fortunately. It's supposed to have a morning session and an afternoon session. The big, big thing is, uh, is we'll likely reset the trial. It's, this trial is currently set for May 20th. I don't think anyone expects that to happen. Uh, so the question is, how far off will she put it? Will it be after the election? Will it ever occur? And uh, so that's a big one. She she also has a slew of issues that relate to something odd that's been happening. She's been emerging as a very, very strong advocate of openness in court with respect to court records, open access to the public and the press to court records. And that may sound like a good thing, but a lot of these records are, uh, happen to be records of uh, witnesses, their identities and their statements. And these are usually kept secret. A lot of this stuff is called Jenks Act material. And there's a, you know, there's a statute that says the government doesn't have to turn over any of this stuff until the witness actually testifies. After he testifies, then the government turns it over. So uh, if a prospective test, uh, witness doesn't testify, it's never turned over. And, and there are good, a lot of reasons for this. It's a, it's a lot of it is to protect the safety of the witness. 
Also, you don't want, in a lot of criminal cases, you don't want the defendant to know what the exact testimony is because he can craft his testimony around it. And uh, also, uh, there's there's a lot of a, a lot of public policy reasons for keeping it secret, and there's a statute that keeps it secret. Sometimes, uh, I mean, often uh, the the government will turn it over shortly before trial so that the trial doesn't get bogged down. Here, what the government did was they wanted to get this case started very quickly. They, in fact, they asked originally for a trial date last December. And so they turned over a lot of discovery early, including Jenksack material, and they under a protective order. And so what the, what the defense started to do, they, they filed some motions to compel, uh, recently, and they just appended to their motions to compel, or I, they understood they had to seal them initially so that this could be litigated, but they want all of this to become public. They want to unseal it. And of course, the press coalition has come in and they would like to unseal it. But uh, the government is very, very upset. And in a preliminary ruling, she already ruled that it should be turned over. Uh, the government has moved for reconsideration, and uh, that's something she's going to take argument on tomorrow. I think that's very, very important. It's something that might be important enough for them to want to try to, for the government, if it loses again, to uh, seek mandamus and try to take this to the 11th Circuit. I don't think it would be an interlocutory appeal. Uh, I don't think they would have that right, but it might be possible to get it up there from mandamus. Uh, one final thing, uh, she ruled uh, yesterday on the SEPA Section 4 stuff, which was interesting. She gave two rulings, um, and she denied the defense, both defense motions. One defense motion related to Nora and de Oliveira, the two defendants, the uh, co-defendants, Trump's co-defendants, who are charged only in the obstruction charges, they aren't charged with willfully, willfully retaining classified materials. Their lawyers wanted them to be able to see the classified materials underlying the first 32 counts, and she ruled that they couldn't. Uh, so that is a positive development. In truth, that ruling could have been made in July. We knew everything we know, you know, we know, I mean, she did but we'll take it. okay she she ruled the right way on the other one it's uh it was a motion by trump who wanted to uh have his lawyers see uh a, a the government's ex party motion containing ultra sensitive classified information um and ordinarily in fact it's never been done it's never been done she denied that she, it was a nine-page motion uh, uh, order. Eight pages were devoted to saying that Trump was right. He made a compelling argument. I think the statute permits it. I'd like to do it, but I think the 11th Circuit doesn't, doesn't allow me to do it. So, um, and that, I think, is the first written ruling she's issued that, you know, formal written ruling going against Trump in the case. So, uh, you know, that's, that's an interesting development. 
So, Roger, I think we're all leading up in this whole matter to what I think is still a May trial date nominally, right? The 20th, is that right? That's where it is at the moment. But tomorrow, she will reset that. Almost half the budget. So, if she does or doesn't, let's say that we're still a target. What are the big outstanding items we need to clear house on before May 20th? What are the big things we're waiting for final resolution on? And something I'm particularly interested in, actually, is how much of that is related to the Espionage Act charges? And how much of it is related to the obstruction? I think it's almost entirely on the Espionage Act charges. Is that right? You know, there's there are two more big steps on the classified information. Uh, there's Section 5, Section 6, trying to decide how will uh, classified information be presented in, in a public courtroom at trial. Those are very tricky issues. Like I say, you know, it's took her, taken her this long for the Section 4 stuff. Some of this stuff most judges would have handled in July. So, yeah, that, that could take a long time. But the, they also have just filed, I mean, together something in the neighborhood of maybe 15 motions to dismiss and for to suppress evidence. And they have asked for hearings relating to nine, more than nine different issues. And again, uh, Judge uh, Cannon, you know, she tends to take very, very seriously anything the defense lawyers uh, bring to her. Uh, So this, you know, resolving these and the associated hearings, that could take uh, months. Just a little plug on on the issues that I was discussing of relating to public access. Should the public have access to this Jenks material and other uh, uh, materials that identify witnesses? Uh, I have a story on lawfare uh, about that subject right now. Something like Judge Aileen Cannon, champion of uh, the public's right of access to documents and so on. Perfect. Wonderful. Um, yes, definitely look at that if you want a little more deeper dive on this issue set. Well, let's now go to state court back up north, working north to south as we've done so far geographically. Let us st- stop very briefly in the city of New York, which does appear to be on track to be the first case actually brought to trial against former President Trump, uh, just as it was the first uh, set of charges actually brought. Roger, we've seen kind of a n- trickle of developments as we get ready for what is supposed to be a March trial date, uh, as I recall. What are we seeing happening as we enter this kind of final stretch before the actual trial should start, if everything continues on its current schedule? The parties are submitting motions in limine, uh, and then also the government, uh, the people, they call it, it's the people of the state of New York. Um, The people have requested uh, a gag order on Trump. Uh, It seems to be modeled somewhat off the D.C. uh, gag order. They've also uh, uh, asked for an order to protect uh, jurors uh, uh, and the questionnaires and their their privacy. And uh, there were there were some interesting things in those motions that um, I hadn't known. There there is a federal interstate threat charge that's been lodged against a Utah man for threatening uh, Alvin Bragg, the the DA. So there have now been three, um, you know, federal cases charged uh, in in these cases against Trump. 
Uh, one was against Chutkin, one was against Cannon, uh, and then one against uh, Alvin Bragg. Oddly, that that whole docket is uh, sealed. So uh, that's why we didn't know about it until then. There were also some details about the efforts that Judge Kaplan went to in the E. Jean Carroll trials. And actually, um, he not only kept the jurors' identities secret, but he instructed them, uh, well, he, he, he didn't instruct them, but he told them it might be a good idea if you don't even tell your fellow jurors your real names. So that way you control your identity. Because the, 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 the threats are, are so serious. And actually, a lot of the evidence he used, the, um, the, the people presented, related to a trial I think Quinta knows a lot about. It's the um, trial against Roger Stone. And Trump was uh, beating on the jurors, the foreman in particular. Uh, uh, their identities were kept secret, but... Uh, people found out anyway, um, and they got hate mail. And uh, and then after the trial, uh, there was a uh, right-wing uh, uh, media figure who tried to unseal the jurors' uh, questionnaires and their identities, and there was litigation about it, very scary stuff. So um, anyway, so th- th- they they went into that as well. I'll just say, yeah, I mean, look, this is a it's an ongoing issue. I had a piece on lawfare regarding the New York and D.C. gag orders, sort of raising the question of whether the courts are equipped to handle this problem of harassment, um, which is very relevant to this. And I'll just say Reuters actually has a really great piece that I believe was published today about threats received by judges in cases related to Trump, which opens with an anecdote of a U.S. District Judge Royce Lamberth, who's in uh, the uh, U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia, um, who received waves and waves and waves of hate mail um, after handling a January 6th case, including someone who found his home phone number and called it repeatedly threatening to murder him. And just to be clear, Royce Lamberth is one of the thickest skinned people on the federal bench. He is um, famously combative, and he is generally tickled by public criticism or engagement. Also not a raging leftist, I would say. No, no, he was, uh, he's a... I would say mildly right of center yeah. judge, but mostly iconoclastic. And, That's what I was going to say. <laughs> uh, but the, the point is for him to be alarmed enough for this to be a story, it must have been something pretty dramatic. Yeah. So I highly recommend the Reuters reporting, which sort of just underlines how this is a, a growing problem. And I will say, at least in the federal judiciary, the marshals have some level of resources to deal with this problem. Apparently, Judge Lamberth was able to get assistance in upgrading his home security system. I don't know if state courts have the same level of resources. And I I do worry that we're going to be seeing the chickens come home to roost there a little bit in New York. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Let us shift our attention to the final jurisdiction. Well, maybe not the final jurisdiction, but the final major jurisdiction on our list, uh, back down south to Fulton County, Georgia, where we have had a lot of media sensation, I would say, over the last week uh, in that particular case. Perhaps a little bit more heat than fire, uh, but nonetheless, uh, certainly uh, an interesting set of developments regarding geolocation, regarding testimony and violations of attorney-client privilege, or not, but probably, if we're being honest, uh, almost certainly. (laughs) There's no way there's not a serious set of violations. Don't want to prejudge anyone. Um, So tell us a little bit about what has been happening in this case, and particularly this kind of side trial we have been living through over Fannie Willis, her relationship with her subordinate, Nathan Wade, and how it relates to whether she should be disqualified from prosecuting former President Trump and his co-defendants. I, I think the technical name for this part of the the Fulton County proceeding is the shit show. But look, here's the, here's the, the basic outline of the situation. The defense, uh, in, I, I want to suggest, uh, there, you know, the, ju- the lawyer who's behind this, Ashley Merchant, has taken a real public beating for it. I want to suggest this was good defense lawyering. She completely changed the subject of the, of, of the, the entire conversation to the benefit of her client and, uh, a guy named Mike Roman and to the benefit of, uh, the other defendants, including Donald Trump. She alleged a conflict of interest arising out of the romantic relationship between Fonnie Willis and her special prosecutor, Nathan Wade. Uh, she provided just enough evidence that such a relationship in fact existed and that it might present a financial conflict of interest that the judge had to felt he had to hold an evidentiary hearing on the subject. And then she effectively turned the evidentiary hearing into a zoo. There are two major components of this right now, and it's not clear to me that they're related. The first is the question, and this is all going to be argued tomorrow. It is going to continue to be the greatest reality television show since the OJ case. And I got to say, having been old enough to watch the OJ case, this is better. Look, the first is uh, they're going to be arguing tomorrow these – having put on this evidence, they're going to be arguing the question of the conflict. I do not think they have shown – a con- an actual conflict of interest within the meaning of Georgia law on the subject. Although they're closer than I would, than I'm comfortable with. Um, I do think what they've shown is a 
preponderant likelihood that Fannie Willis and Nathan Wade, both of whom are representing the state, have not been entirely truthful on a number of matters. And this puts the judge in an extremely difficult position because, first of all, if you if you decide to rule for disqualification, it's not clear how you establish the factual record to support that. And if you decide to rule against disqualification, what do you do with all this evidence that is not trivial that the county DA and her top prosecutor in the biggest case in the history of Fulton County, and maybe the biggest case in the history of anywhere else for that matter, are both lying on the stand. And so I know that it is fashionable to belittle this situation, and there's been a kind of you-go-girl quality to the uh, media's coverage of her testimony and of the proceedings sort of making this seem like a giant sideshow. And in some sense, it is a giant sideshow. But in another sense, it has raised a real set of integrity questions about the Fulton County prosecution. And while none of them bear on the integrity of the case, I do think they are pretty substantial questions at this point, And they're going to be difficult ones for Judge McAfee, whom we call Boy Wonder, to, you know, figure out particularly because, you know, he's still a teenager. So, Anna, you have been watching these very closely. You've been in the room for some of them. You've been watching them remotely. We're not. Tell us a little bit about your impressions. What do you agree with with from Ben's take? Where would you depart from? And what are some of the other recent developments that have kind of jumped out at you? Yeah, I mean, I I think I largely agree with Ben, maybe with a a few caveats, but we wrote a piece together on the subject and, and both agreed that we found that though we didn't think the evidence at the time, this was, we wrote this after that February 15th and 16th evidentiary hearing. So before we had new testimony from Terrence Bradley this week. Uh, and before we had the phone right, records. And, and importantly, again, at, before we had the phone records, as Ben says, so, so the phone records that came, were filed on Monday, and we still do not know to what extent those records will be admitted. I think that they can be admitted into evidence because, you know, they're business records. I think that just the raw data itself ultimately likely will be able to come in. But there's the question of whether or not, you know, we're going to have a summary witness to testify on it, uh, or if the state will get to have an expert witness. There's this kind of debate that's going on that will be addressed at the arguments tomorrow. And so we might see some more uh, testimony following arguments tomorrow. But the important thing about those cell phone records is that it showed uh, in the time period before Nathan Wade and Vonnie Willis say that they were in a relationship, they had a large volume of calls and text messages together. That's not particularly you know, surprising considering that they both testify that they spoke frequently during the year 2021 before he was appointed. He was on her transition team after she was elected uh, to the DA's office. Uh, they, you know, had 
had a friendship and and a professional relationship, uh, but it was a very large volume of calls. And importantly, they also got this cell phone location information. And although Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade both said, you know, they'd never spent the night together, they'd never been in a relationship prior to 2022, there are two specific days that show that Nathan Wade and Fonnie Willis uh, or, or Nathan Wade seemed to be in the area where Fonnie Willis lived at the time and that they had contemporaneous, you know, text and calls uh, during that time period in which Nathan Wade travels from his home in one area of Atlanta, seems to travel to the neighborhood that Fonnie Willis lives in, in the, you know, around 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night, and then left around three or four o'clock in the morning. And the only reason that I raise this is because it kind of goes to what Ben was talking about, where there are some questions that have arisen through all of this about, you know, whether uh, the prosecution team has really been forthright and candid in its testimony about when this relationship started. And so I think the defense team, their argument is that these kind of, this location data seems to suggest that these are two people who were not really being uh, candid with the court when they said that they'd never spent the night together, you know, that they didn't have a relationship before 2022. So it's to be seen whether Judge McAfee allows that kind of evidence in, that's going to be addressed tomorrow. Then we also had Terrence Bradley, who is the former divorce attorney uh, for Nathan Wade, who tested He had at one time been billed as the star witness for the defense team, who it was alleged that he had personal knowledge of the timing of the relationship. Uh, He had apparently been in communication with Ashley Merchant, who is the defense attorney who originally brought this motion on behalf of Mike Roman. And he previously asserted privilege, so it was kind of unclear what he knew or didn't know. Uh, And then Judge McAfee met with him in private ultimately determined that those claims of privilege were, you know, improperly raised and so that he would have to retake the stand. So he did that earlier this week and we didn't really learn a whole lot from him. It was a lot of, I do not recall. He claimed that, uh, you know, although there were these text messages that he had with Ashley Merchant, where he told her that her motion looked good, that she planned to file, which in that motion it claimed, you know, that the relationship began before Nathan Wade was appointed as special prosecutor. Uh, He told her that the relationship absolutely began before uh, he, Nathan Wade was appointed. And yet on the stand, he said, well, I was just speculating. I actually didn't have any personal knowledge of any of that. And the guy just as a witness, I've got to say, had so many inconsistencies was so evasive that it's really hard to see how Judge McAfee credits anything that he says at any point, um, either, you know, for the defense or for the prosecution. So it seemed to me that, you know, even though he was supposed to be this big witness who was going to come in and, and potentially confirm the defense's account of when the relationship began, I think it really didn't move the needle either way because he is just a, a witness who did not seem to have any credibility whatsoever. Uh, so those are some of the developments that, that have come up over the past week in terms of 
what's going to be in consideration when Judge McAfee makes his decision. Uh, but I do agree with Ben that, you know, I still come down on the uh, side of thinking that they haven't established what was originally alleged in the motion, which was that there was some kind of actual conflict of interest, meaning a financial incentive or benefit in the outcome of the case or in continuing the prosecution as long as possible because of the this relationship generating some kind of financial benefit through a kickback scheme. But I do think that there are some questions maybe in Judge McAfee's mind about how candid uh, the prosecution team was when when they were on the stand uh, under oath. And I think that that's something that he is going to be concerned about, particularly because if there's any doubt in his mind that new facts could come to light in the coming months, he knows that there are two defendants, uh, Sean Still and Trevion Cootie, who still have the ability to raise uh, motions later on in, you know, in April, I, I think is Sean Still's deadline, uh, because his case is stayed until he is out of General Assembly, since he is a Georgia um, Assembly person. So, you know, he's going to be thinking in his mind that, you know, if there's any chance new facts come to light, he doesn't want to have to deal with this again. And he doesn't want the prosecution and the case itself to be in some way tainted by, you know, public perception of of the prosecution team potentially not being honest. So it, I think those are things he's going to be thinking about as he makes his decision. And and that's that's, I think, where I'll end it uh, for now. Yeah. So just to add one thing to that, one thing you should look for tomorrow if you watch this, and as I say, you should because it's the best reality television show ever, is whether Judge McAfee is interested in getting to whether the facts amount to an actual conflict of interest or whether he flirts with the idea that the standard may be a lower standard, that is, an appearance of impropriety, which he's made some noises about in the past. I think if you start hearing him really entertain the idea that the standard may be lower than an actual conflict of interest, he is looking for a way to disqualify. It is hard for me to see how you get to actual conflict on the current factual record, unless he concludes uh, she was lying on the stand, and therefore I don't believe her about the cash payments. I believe that he paid for her and they're both lying about it. Then you could rule that there's an actual conflict and they are both lying to cover it up. And that would be the worst possible ruling for uh, the prosecution not clear to me that the evidence would entirely support such a motion, but again, it depends whom you credit among the various witnesses who've testified. We are almost out of time before we get to the Q&A, uh, so I'm going to cut off the conversation there. I'm going to hit a couple of quick short notices just to flag for you of other developments, just so you know we did not miss them. Uh, Mark Meadows, the 11th Circuit, denied his petition for rehearing on Bonk uh, in regards to trying to remove his prosecution in Fulton County to federal court. That means if he's going to go anywhere, he's going to have to go to the Supreme Court next, so keep an eye out for that as a yet another Supreme Court decision uh, or matter potentially they'll have to weigh relating to President Trump prosecutions. Um, Donald Trump is also appealing the former 
$454 million judgment in his New York civil fraud case. Uh, we're going to see more litigation coming forward on that on the civil front in New York. Uh, an Illinois judge has kicked former President Trump off the ballot under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Uh, in that case, proceeding, a uh, notable development there. Uh, and, uh, of course, most important, perhaps, for some of us is that Fulton County is now out of the lockbit ransomware lockdown uh, that added today as of the deadline that uh, lockbit had imposed. Uh, Greg Krebs, the uh, reporter, the cybersecurity reporter, is reporting that uh, somebody at lockbit told him that Fulton County actually paid the ransom uh, in this particular case, uh, which just broke a few minutes ago. Um, but we will have to see if that is actually the case or not. Uh, other people are somewhat skeptical. With all that, let us go to questions and answers. We're going to start with Len Grossman as a question. The court declined to enter a stay, saying it was mute, It was moot, but it remained stayed. Please explain. This is in relation to the immunity case. Ben, why don't I hand that over to you to get us started on that one? Yeah, so... Uh it didn't decline to issue a stay. What it did was it uh, directed the D.C. Circuit to continue to withhold the issuance of its mandate to the lower court. And because it had done that, which effectively functions as a stay, it dismisses the motion for a stay as moot. Whether you want to count that as issuing a stay or count it as uh, making a stay unnecessary, I think is a matter of how many angels are on the head of a pen. Uh, it is truly a distinction without a difference. The point is, the, the relevant point is that Tanya Chutkin in the district court cannot do anything without that mandate in her hand. Um, and the mandate is literally a slip of paper that says, this is what we direct you to do. She can't do anything until she has it. And the Supreme Court has directed the D.C. Circuit, don't give it to her until we're done. All right. Another question. We have a question now from Penelope Wisdom. Tell us, is it likely the New York election interference case, I think she means the New York criminal case, which is not technically election interference, but uh, New York criminal case, stayed on the, is it going to be stayed on the same basis as the D.C. district court case? Briggs case is under state law. However, Trump will make precisely the same argument. Quinda, what do you make of that one? I'm not sure that's quite right, but I'll let you uh, give a, take a stab at it first. So if the question is whether Trump is raised, raising an immunity claim in the, the New York criminal case. Um, or could he, I think, either. Well, so I don't believe that he has. Roger, please do correct me if I'm if I'm wrong there. I feel like I'm recalling that he at some point kind of made some gestures at a like supremacy clause argument. I don't really know how far that can carry him, given that the bulk of the conduct in question is actually stuff that occurred before he was in office, although he was signing some of the checks that make up some of the evidence. I'm not sure if they constitute the records that were some of the records that were are charged as, as fraudulent during his his time in office. But given that the um, conspiracy begins during his run for president, it's certainly a much heavier lift for him. I think that's right. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. So, Roger, Roger, I'm, you've been following this closely, and Anna, I saw you were, were nodding as well, if you have any thoughts. Oh, yes. I was just going to say it was in the context of his removal proceedings when he tried to remove that case to uh, federal court because you have to have some kind of 
hook with a federal defense. And so that's when he he raised the supremacy clause immunity argument. All right. We have a question. Why don't we say take this question from Josh? Josh asks, today is the eighth anniversary of Justice Thomas's breaking his 10-year silence from the bench during oral arguments. That was shortly after Scalia's death. Scalia was frequently very combative. Has Thomas picked up the slack? Uh, why don't we go to, uh, I don't know who's been following the court or listening to most oral arguments recently. I think it's probably you, Quinta. Uh, you treated yourself to a four-hour dip into <laughs> oral argument earlier this week. What is your sense on this one? I well, In which Clarence Thomas did indeed speak a, a great deal. I mean, so I will say Justice Thomas has certainly been speaking particularly uh, a fair amount since uh, COVID, um, when the justices mixed up their format for questioning. Um, And Chief Justice Roberts began going in order of seniority, which put uh, Justice Thomas first, and he he began speaking quite a bit. And that pattern seems to, to have continued. I think the the questioner is certainly right that Thomas and Scalia were sort of uh, ideologically akin in a lot of ways when Scalia was on the bench. I, I actually would push back a little and suggest I think it's a mistake to kind of think of Thomas as carrying Scalia's torch. He's very much his own justice and has his own sort of way of of looking at things. And the influence that he's currently wielding sort of over the that the farther right, I think it's fair to say, wing of the court is very much a, a creature of his own particular brand of uh, sort of rigid is I'm not sure the quite right word, but um, strict maybe originalism and sort of his his own way of doing things. So and he certainly is not snarky uh, in quite the way that that Justice Scalia is. I think that uh, no no one has quite picked up that torch yet. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I'd also know the the court since COVID has stuck with a kind of seniority yes, sequencing, yes. kind of softer, not not as rigid as it was because they don't have to jump from screen to screen, and that makes a big difference because Clarence Thomas is the most senior judge. A Chief Justice, you know, has priority over him. Chief Justice Roberts, however, usually allows him to ask the first question, um, or at least has in the oral arguments I've listened to in the last few years. Uh, so I think that's a perhaps a bit of a driver, and he's just been more engaged on a lot of fronts, including like outside the court in the last eight years uh, than he was for the period prior to that. So there is something, a bit of a personal difference just just coming out in Justice Thomas. But he's really not a combative guy on the bench in any of the arguments I've heard. He usually asks one or two straightforward questions and then is quiet for the rest of the time. There's one other thing about Justice Thomas that bears on this, which is that he is a, you know, he always said whenever people would ask him why don't you speak at oral argument, he always said he doesn't like the culture of interrupting advocates and he doesn't want to interrupt other justices. And, you know, he's, he's actually like, like values, I think the orderly process that while he seems to have other problems with the chief justice, he, uh, he clearly feels more comfortable talking in the process that Robert set up where everybody has as much time. They, everybody has time. Rehnquist really cut things off at a, you know, when, when, when your time was up, he would cut you off in the middle of a sentence. And I, I think Thomas just likes this format better. And that's the best explanation for the change in behavior. 
Our next question comes from Carl, who asks, I have heard a few lawfare contributors talk about how it is inappropriate for Jack Smith to ask the courts to hurry up with various decisions regarding Trump's trials so that they would be concluded prior to the election. Could you elaborate as to why? Uh, It's a little bit of elaboration after that, but I think that's the main thrust of that question. Why don't we start with uh, Roger? Do you have thoughts about this? Uh, We talked about this a little bit earlier on. Um, What may or may not make that inappropriate? And what do you make of Jack's argument in particular in in the piece he wrote on this uh, a few weeks ago, a few days ago? I don't want to talk about uh, Jack's piece. I read it very quickly. I mean, uh, there is supposedly we're we're not supposed to take elections into account. I actually find this sort of a little crazy. Uh, you know, I, I, which is which side is not taking elections into account um, to, to get to cut the case off or to hear it. You know, this case was indicted back in August. The fact of the investigation has been known since November 2021. Nobody is being surprised. Uh, there, uh, and that's different from like Comey uh, two weeks before an election uh, introducing, uh, you know, we're going to uh, some new bit of investigative action that nobody knew about. Um, this is something that everyone should have known about. And if they've had their head in the sand, uh, that's their problem. You know, this ought to go to trial. Uh, and and the idea that you're, oh, no, we, we have to cut it off. And in fact... Uh, Trump, uh, in his motion, uh, you know, he wanted this, he wanted the Supreme Court to really help him and to put in a a stay and then let him go seek and bank hearing to uh, before the DC, you know, to run off the clock the maximum possible. And he, you know, because he's a very candid guy. And he said, Oh, this will give uh, the American voters, you know, serve their First Amendment right to hear from me the candidate during the campaign. Well, if that isn't affecting the campaign, uh, what is? And, you know, I think the electorate has a First Amendment, a right to hear from the jury, you know, to get a verdict and to to hear what everyone's hiding here. But anyway, uh, uh, I I can't speak to Jack. That's I don't know if that's responsive to the question. With the caveat that I disagree with Jack for some of the reasons that Roger just articulated. I can channel Jack for purposes of this conversation. Look, everybody agrees that it would be very wrong to issue an indictment in order to influence an election and to conduct a trial for the purposes of influencing voters, right? The idea is that the justice system is supposed to be separate from the political system. Obviously, there there's bleed between them, but they, you know, we do have Lady Justice who wears blindfold, etc., blah, blah, blah. When you say we have to get this trial done in time for the election, which, by the way, Jack Smith doesn't say, and that's, I, I actually would be, this is me, not Jack speaking. I would be more comfortable with what he's doing if he would just say it. If, you know, and I, 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 I think he, like, 
it would be a not terrible thing for the ju- for the special counsel to say, hey, it's an unprecedented situation for somebody who's under federal indictment to be running for president. We uh, we think the voters are entitled to a disposition of this matter before the election. I don't think that would be the most, you know, like would I don't think that would be an unreasonable thing. That said, that's not what he does. What Jack Smith is actually doing is playing a little bit uh, cagey. He says it's really important to have this trial in a t- very timely fashion. And his idea of a timely fashion always happens to coincide with the electoral calendar in a favorable way. But he doesn't say um, it's important to get this done in time for an election. So he's being a little bit uh, slippery here. Jack's argument is that the reason he's being slippery is that the thing that I say wouldn't bother me very much, um, in fact, I think it would be healthy, uh, is in fact a frank violation of DOJ policy. And DOJ policy is that you don't consider things like the electoral calendar. And Jack's a purist about that kind of thing and feels that Jack Smith shouldn't be doing this. And I suspect some justices probably agree with him about that. And look, I do think that there is a, uh, this is a situation that tests a lot of the norms and rules. And it is not obvious what the right answer to it is. What I can say is that I would like to see the trial completed in time for voters to take it into account. But it would be wrong of Jack Smith under DOJ policy to say that, query whether it's equally wrong for him to behave that way without saying it. So some of that is Jack's uh, channeling Jack, and some of that is my own commentary. Our next question from Doug. Doug asks, what holds Supreme Court justice back from speaking out publicly against moves the court may take? For example, speaking against the continuation of the stay in the immunity case with which they might disagree. Uh, I would propose the answer is that they do do this, and they're called dissents. Uh, Quinta, you want to take a crack at it? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, that's that is correct, and I think we were all expecting there to be a dissent if the court decided to deny sir and pass the mandate back down to the the trial court. You have increasingly seen justices speak publicly about the state of things on the court. In recent years, um, Justice Thomas among them, I believe either Justice Thomas or Justice Alito uh, publicly made some pretty, uh, I believe it was Justice Thomas, made some pretty critical comments about the chief um, and the environment on the court uh, last year or the year before. Um, We've also seen other justices, um, including I'm thinking of uh, Kagan and Sotomayor commenting publicly, although their comments were more on the in on the side of, you know, I know it seems rough sometimes, but we're all colleagues here that that kind of thing. Um, But I do think the fact that they're speaking more publicly about this uh, shows that the cracks are widening, so to speak, because until recently, you really wouldn't have expected anyone to be speaking out um, in that way at all, particularly not the kind of comments that Justice Thomas made uh, critical of the chief. All right. 
A question from Mike here asks, does the Supreme Court's question presented, I'm assuming this is in the context of the immunity case, amount to the court asking the prosecutor in the D.C. Circuit whether they even thought about the official acts portion of Nixon v. Fitzgerald? If so, doesn't that explain the court's delay in acting and its decision to grant cert? Why don't we turn to Ben on this one? Uh, what do you make of this reading of the question presented? Yeah, so the the question presented uh, the court did a really interesting thing here, which is it reformulated the question. Um, and it reformulated it in a, in a direction that is, I would say, both friendly and unfriendly to Trump in different ways. So friendly to Trump in the sense that it seems to allow that there is a not none answer to the question of how much presidential immunity exists. Now, I've I've been pointing this out, as has Quinta, for a while, that this is not an all-or-nothing proposition. It's a rheostat. Um, and uh, the insistence of both the district court and the D.C. Circuit that this was a immunity doesn't exist for this case, period, blah, 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 uh, is something that the Supreme Court might actually have a problem with. I think you're seeing that there are at least several justices who have a problem with that. And so they formulated the question as a kind of, is there immunity for official acts? And if so, how much there is, is there? Um, now, the, the reason this is not good for Trump is that a lot of the behavior alleged in that indictment are not plausibly official acts. And so you could have quite a lot of immunity for official acts and it wouldn't help Trump very much. And then the other reason it could be very bad for Trump is that uh, because you have – Trump needs there to be absolute immunity for a lot of things. And if you put it on a rheostat instead of make it binary, you could end up with a qualified immunity standard. And the qualified immunity standard is not going to help Donald Trump very much in this case. So I think there are some elements the, the, the court's reformulation of the question is a really interesting one, um, is a really interesting issue. Uh, it's helpful to Trump in a limited set of ways and hurtful in another set of ways. I, I agree with that, but I want to supplement that slightly to point out that if you are going to start splitting hairs between what is an official act and what isn't, which is the thing the D.C. Circuit wanted to avoid, that does strongly suggest that you're going to need some additional fact-finding or evaluating of facts, which means additional action by the court. So it is a bit – it probably is a sign, if that is the way the court goes, that it will help Trump's timeline at least, even if, again, the substance outcome doesn't come out because it means another bit of litigation at the trial court level then potentially appeals from that. Now, we don't know, just because the question was presented that way, I forget exactly the procedures for de developing the question presented, but only four justices had to support granting cert. Um, so it doesn't mean that that's necessarily five justices to actually reach a majority opinion would split the hair the same way there. But if that is reflecting how a majority of the court is thinking, that could be another good sign for Trump on the timing front, not on the substance. And a question from Zach. Is it possible that Trump has an Eighth Amendment argument against the New York State civil judgment? I don't know, but I doubt it. But does anyone else have a sense of this? Well, I, I think the answer is no. If it applies outside the criminal context, it's exceedingly rare. I don't know if it does. Uh, but uh, just, uh, no, we've had uh, we've had people unable to pay judgments before. There was when, when one went up to the Supreme Court. It was sort of a big deal when I was a 
Young, uh, the uh, Texas, uh, there was a judgment, the Pennzoil won a judgment against Texaco in a, before a jury in Galveston, and a, Pennzoil was represented by a uh, very good local plaintiff's lawyer, Joe Jamail, and they won $10 billion, and that was a lot of money back then, and Texaco couldn't pay it, and, uh, and you needed to post a bond, and they couldn't, and they went bankrupt, and uh, went up to the Supreme Court, and they said, tough. So uh, they didn't say Eighth Amendment. They didn't say anything else. They said tough. So uh, I don't think he has an Eighth Amendment issue. Yeah, and I would say at least a good chunk. I think the majority of these funds are actually compensatory and penalties, like statutory regulatory penalties. So they're pegged to pre-existing authorities. If it were mostly punitive damages, I actually don't think it would be an Eighth Amendment issue, but it could encounter other legal issues about just being excessively punitive. But um, uh, I don't. I don't think that's an issue in this case because I think that is actually a not the lion's share of the uh, funds and the the costs that Trump is facing. But I, I could be wrong about that. I but that's my that's recollection. Right. And that would be a due process claim. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I don't. It wouldn't be a rooted in the Eighth Amendment. I don't believe. I think. Uh, but I could be wrong. I don't think that's right. Uh, but who knows? We don't know this stuff. This is this is you found one. You stumped us. Congratulations. Uh, let us now go to Fulton County uh, for a good question that I've wondered myself from Suzanne, who asks if Fanny Willis actually repaid Nathan Wade in cash. Wouldn't she have loads of proof that she regularly makes cash withdrawals from her bank or her supermarket or wherever? Uh, everyone seems to just accept. Well, she paid in cash. So there's no money trail, but she's not paid in cash for work as a DA and you can't withdraw cash without generating a receipt. So where is this evidence? Anna Bauer, have we heard discussion of this or seen evidence about this claim of this uh, huge stash of cash that Fannie Willis has uh, caring about her at any given moment? Yeah. So I think that her response to that when she testified is that, uh, you know, the cat, it's not, it's not necessarily that she's, you know, withdrawing tons of cash all the time. It's more of like something that, you know, she'll go to the grocery store and pay by credit card and then get cash back or something like that and and kind of add to the cash that she keeps in her home, you know, and, and that that kind of was her practice. It's not or that maybe someone will pay her back for something and then she'll add that to whatever it is that she has in her home. And it's not something where she's actively, you know, going to the ATM, withdrawing $2,500 and then giving it to Nathan Wade. It's like she has an existing kind of ongoing, uh, you know, bits here and there that just add up to her having, you know, a significant amount of cash. Uh, I, whether, you know, you find that to be a compelling explanation, I'll, uh, you know, let you decide and, and you can watch her testimony. I will say that was, uh, corroborated at least in part by her father who also testified and, and discussed, you know, how growing up that was something that he always told her to have cash on hand and that, uh, he had three safes of cash in their home. And, uh, you know, it kind of really just, it, it it was it was a thing in their family and and also that there was a one of the wineries that they visited in Napa Valley came forward and said yeah she paid us in $400 in cash it was really surprising we, we were expecting her to hand us a credit card like everybody else did so there actually does seem to be some corroboration for this 
And um, her testimony on this point was detailed and uh, about her practice and how she did. And I actually found it, at least at the time, pretty credible. Yeah, and I, I will say, too, on the winery point, um, prosecutors ahead of that hearing tomorrow, another issue that has just you know recently arisen – although it's been hard to track down the motion because there's no way to access the docket because of the Fulton County cyber attack. Uh, prosecutors are asking for the uh, winery person, the owner who, you know, CNN found who remembered Fonnie Willis paying in cash. They're asking for that person to be able to submit an affidavit into evidence um, about that. So uh, that's something else that will be addressed tomorrow. Um, but I, I mean, I will say that, you know, it's, it, you have Fonnie Willis's testimony, her father's corroborating testimony, uh, you know, potentially this winery person, uh, and then also Nathan Wade testifying as well. And both of their stories linking up to, you know, the amounts that were paid and, you know, maybe details about, for example, where, where Fonnie Willis gave him the cash. They both said that she gave it to him in Belize, for example, on that trip. So there's, there's a number of things that if you look at what's in evidence, uh, there's a lot that, that could lead Judge McAfee to finding that this, uh, seemingly implausible story about cash repayments actually makes sense in context. All right. Question from Justin. I'm going to direct this to you, Roger. Can you give us some context for Trump's legal billing rate? Although, Quint, I know you've been following this. You may actually have a better sense of this. Uh, what would a normal defendant expect to spend in trials like this? Is Trump's burn rate higher or lower than average? Yeah, I actually don't have a sense of this, Roger. I don't know if you do. I'm afraid I don't either. <laughs> sorry. Wasn't yep, sorry waiting. about that, I Justin. guess all, all I can say is that, you know, the so far the money has been coming not from Trump, but from this leadership pack um, through a sort of complicated structure that seems like it might run afoul of campaign finance law or might not, but the FEC is probably not going to do anything about it. So, you know, who knows? But that that leadership, so that that PAC is paying the funds. I think there's a question about whether or not that PAC will run out of money at a certain point because it just requested a refund from another PAC to which it had loaned the money for use on the Trump campaign. Um, so all of this is a little bit of a, a shell game. Um, and I'll be interested if we ever get any sense of how much money is behind which of the shells. And I will say just on the billing front, anecdotally, I think we do know, A, that lawyers are very expensive and their rates vary a lot. B, Trump hires weird lawyers sometimes and weird numbers of them as judged by some of the difficulty of processing some of this stuff. And C, he has trouble hiring lawyers because he's had payment issues with a lot of them in the past. So they have weird billing arrangements. I know we've seen some get very large upfront sums and things like that. So I'm just not sure how easy it is to compare one-to-one with any other case. Uh, he's a unique defendant. These are kind of unique matters. That's my sense of it, at least. That leaves us with one last question as we go from Laura Donna, who asked, why is the Supreme Court dealing with free speech and social media, which they understand to be tricky instead of immunity, which is clearly not? 
Yeah, I mean, so the, the court has, is taking up this, I think this is referencing the net choice social media cases, with have, which have to do with Texas and, and Florida social media laws limiting platforms' ability to moderate content. Um, I think I'd just say, you know, that's kind of in a different category than the Trump immunity issue. And so far as the Trump immunity issue is on the emergency docket, the net choice issue is on the Supreme Court's typical docket. It was briefed at a leisurely pace. They really took their time getting to it. And I assume they'll take their time in, in giving us a decision as well. It sort of doesn't have the same time crunch. And, and so I think it's a bit of an apples and oranges issue there. There we go. On that note, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's edition of Trump Trials and Tribulations. Until next time, I'm Scott R. Anderson. We are Benjamin Wittes, Roger Parloff, Anna Bauer, and Quinta Dressick. Thank you so much for joining us and see you next week. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also be able to pose questions to our panel and become part of our conversation online with Riverside, available only to our supporters. This podcast is edited by Jen Pacha and your audio engineer. This episode was Anna Hickey of Lawfare. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.